The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv slash education. It is so wonderful to be here. Welcome. Welcome to all of you. Don't get jealous. But exactly 40 years ago on June 18th at 7.33 a.m., I was there anchoring the liftoff of the space shuttle. I am jealous. I sat there and watched and said nothing while two giant rockets crackled to life. Then the smoke from the enormous fuel tank billowed out. Slowly, the gleaming white space plane broke free from Earth's gravity and headed into that cloudless blue sky over Florida. The engineering miracle of spaceflight is always worth celebrating, but of course it all took a backseat that day to the social revolution that was personified by the 32-year-old California girl strapped in the backseat. Sally Ride, a physicist from California, was, of course, the first American woman in space, not the first woman, the first American woman, piercing the celestial glass ceiling and ushering a new era of equality for NASA and a future opportunity for little girls all over the world. After 25 years of white male fighter pilots doing their Buck Rogers thing, (laughs) Sally proved that you don't need the right plumbing to have the right stuff. It was and is a first worth remembering. It is exactly what we honor here today. And in the 40 years since Sally flew, women have made enormous similar leaps all around the world, all around the country, on the road to equality. I cannot think of a better panel to discuss where we are today on this venture than the women that we have with us today. Let me introduce them so we can get right into the conversation. Lori Leshin is director of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. She is the first woman to hold that position. A distinguished geochemist and space scientist, her list of female firsts also rockets through the world of science and space. She was the president, first female president, of Worcester Polytechnic Institute back on the other coast. (laughs) Uh, She was at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She advised two U.S. presidents of space policy, on space policy, and she was a friend of Sally Ride's. Please welcome Laurie Leshen. Thank you. Natalia Molina is a distinguished professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity at USC, And yes, she used to be here. Many of you know her from her days at UCSD. Natalia's work focuses on the intersections of race, gender, culture, and citizenship. A celebrated author and explorer of the interconnectedness of racial and ethnic communities, she is also a 2020 MacArthur Genius Fellow. Please welcome Natalia. You last saw Aaron Jackson at the 2022 Winter Olympics Games at Beijing, China, when she won a gold medal in ice skating. Speed skating. In speed skating. (laughs) Uh, Aaron is the first black woman to win an individual gold medal at the Winter Olympic Games, and ice skating was not even her first choice. Where do we get to that story? She is a world champ, an international leader, and... She is a scientist. Please welcome Erin Jackson. (laughs) 
It's so nice to be here with all of you and with all of you. The question we're trying to deal with here, as women have moved up the ladder in all places around the world, um, in politics, um, in various places, we're there, but we're sort of short of achieving complete parity in a lot of areas. Um, There's a potential economic crisis we've got in this country, and women, especially older women and women of color, are the first to feel the effects. Uh, We've seen an erosion of our rights that were long taken for granted in issues of health, in issues of education, personal freedom. The question is, are we moving forward or are we slipping back? How do we grasp the reins of these very troubled times and figure out how to get us moving forward and the world at the same time? So, Lori, I'm going to start with you on this very small topic and ask just in general, break it down. What are we facing right now? Give me a quick assessment of where women are. Well, so you started with the easy question. Thank you. Uh, well, first of all, it's wonderful to be here with you and, and to be here on this beautiful campus. Thank you all to all of you so much for coming out for what is undoubtedly going to be an exciting conversation. Um, you know, I, when I was a six-year-old girl, my mom used to bring me to National Organization for Women meetings, and they were organizing in Texas to try and get the ERA passed. And so, as I, as I recall, we still haven't passed that. Yeah, it seems like yeah. maybe uh, yeah. even recently had a little setback there. But, um, but at the time, I I was six, and and I I remember her taking me to some rallies, but also just some organizing meetings, and and uh, you know, very impassioned women sort of standing on their chairs and making lots of noise, and and me not understanding at all what they were doing, but. But now I know that they were back there trying to break barriers. They were doing that so that I could do this, right? And so that we women could rise. They were creating space for us. And when you say, how are we going to do this? Well, it has to be together. And I think that's the key. No one of us is is breaking glass ceilings or um, enhancing freedoms. We have to band together. And it is our collective collaboration and power, the power of our voices, it it can't be shut down if we do it together. And I think we need to because there is clearly um, some movement in the wrong direction right now. Uh, you're agreeing that we're not there. A hundred percent. We are not there. Uh, uh, Natalia, are we there? Are we there yet? <laughs> so on the car ride over here, the a very nice gentleman who brought us over asked what we were doing getting together. And I said, it was a women in leadership panel. And he said, you know, I hadn't heard anybody talk about that in a while. I thought maybe we were, that was done. We were, it was fixed. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he has a good point, right? Because there's for many people, like the house is on fire and yet nobody's saying anything. We saw a crisis during COVID as people were working from home and women suffered in terms of, you know, losing all the childcare. And then instead of doing a double day, really doing like a 24 hour day, seven days a week when it came to childcare and there wasn't an uproar. And so that we had this way in which during a pandemic, you can use a crisis as an opportunity. And in the end, you know, everybody kept saying, we're, 
everything's going to change because of the pandemic. And everything kind of went back to the same, right? We didn't, you know, revolutionize how we did childcare. We didn't revolutionize a lot of things. And I think sometimes, you know, we all want to feel good. So we get those feel good stories. I just got one of those feel good stories. We had, um, I was on the committee, PhD committee for five Latinas at USC. Five got their PhDs that I work with. And we did this story on it. And it was wonderful. And I was explaining the significance, both personal and in terms of the numbers. When I got my PhD in US history, I was the 22nd Chicana, Mexican American woman, to get a PhD in US history. 22nd. Like ever. we knew each other whole- ever. <laughs> Like we would go to lunch when we were at conferences, like 22, number six, you're over here. Number seven, like we, like we actually all knew each other. So to graduate five across fields, social sciences and humanities in one year was amazing. But when you scratch the surface of their stories, that's where that kind of, um, uh, d- discrimination or, you know, uh, not parody is happening. The way that when one of them was pregnant as a graduate student, we didn't really have policies to deal with right. that. The way that one of them, you know, during COVID, many of them went back home to live with their families. And even though they were adults, they were kind of the caretakers in their family when somebody had COVID. So there's those things um, in terms of the numbers and the accomplishments. But then when you dig deeper, you that's where you start to see, wait a minute, you know, childcare is not just a woman's issue. Uh, family care is not just a daughter's issue. And until we stop seeing these gendered issues as that and start seeing them as our collective responsibility, then it's going to be hard to change things. I, I want to match your 22 story with the fact that when I covered, um, when I was at ABC News and covered political conventions, we would frequently have a breakfast with Whatever the number of us was, it was somewhere between five and eight. It was myself. It was Ellen Goodman from the Boston Globe, Leslie Stoll at CBS. Uh, and, and we would get together and have breakfast. And in the beginning, we were in a kind of corner of whatever whatever restaurant and whatever hotel and whatever city we were in. And by about the second or third presidential election year when we were doing this, all the guys were moving closer to our table. They wanted to hear what we were saying which was suddenly more interesting than what they were saying. So I, 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 I get that, the 22, wow. So th- there's also a generational issue here because, Aaron, you and I were talking earlier and you said growing up, having been born, oh, I hate to say this, after Sally flew, oh dear. Um, uh, growing up, you took it for granted that women could be astronauts and that women could do a lot of things. When did it hit you that maybe it wasn't always going to be easy for women? Actually, very recently, because, you know, as you mentioned, I I was very fortunate to grow up in a world where, you know, I saw a lot of women out there and doing things. So it's kind of recently when I realized that, you know, maybe things aren't as, you know, fairy tale-y as as I might have imagined. But I think events like like these, where we can get out and kind of hear what other people are experiencing and, and, you know, just kind of getting the, the word out. I think these types of events are really important, especially for me, like just trying to, to learn from, from other women in leadership and, you know, trying to help wherever I can. What, what do you think, or do you have an opinion on whether there is more um, progress to be made as women or as a woman of color 
where where is there greater Shirley Chisholm used to say the woman uh, American woman uh, uh, New Yorker who of course was a congresswoman from Brooklyn used to say she felt more discrimination as a woman than as a black and I'm wondering if you if that comes down either way or if it's all just one big mess for you Oh. <laughs> well, I think it all kind of works hand in hand, like anyone who might feel underrepresented. It's important to kind of work together because, you know, we're all striving for the same thing. So I think, you know, being a woman and a, and a person of color, I mean, they're, they're both two different ways to kind of get to the same thing, right? Because we, we all want the same thing. We all want to be represented. And, you know, there's a lot of diversity in the world. So I think it's really important to have everyone kind of have their voice heard in the world. And I think yeah the way to do it is together let's talk about why women what do we bring that a man anybody else couldn't bring what is special about what are our qualities uh natalia i think that when we talk about women we're talking about the shared values that we have you know some of them which we've been taught to have, you know, your, your caretakers, you're looking out for people. Um, and so when you're developed, you're developing in those ways, you, you think more about equity. And when you're juggling different roles, you also think about, there's gotta be a different way to do this. Um, you know, it's not necessarily that the system is broken. It's that the system was never designed for women who are, you know, also caretaking children or family members or are always the ones to be thinking of what we need to do. You know, what else is going on? My my uh, dear husband accompanied me to this um, on this weekend and he's going golfing tomorrow with two friends. And he said, one of them can't come anymore. And I said, why not? He goes, he just found out that his um, kids are off of school tomorrow. And I said, Come on, it's May. How long has he had that school calendar? <laughs> Any woman gets that school calendar, the first thing you do is you write down every day, right? Because you make sure that you are available for it. And so there's that that way of thinking outside the box. And I'll give you a small example. I recently had the honor and privilege of serving as the interim research director at the Huntington Library Museum and Gardens in San Marino. Gorgeous place. We have, you know, um, 300 scholars come through every year and we have a long-term fellowship program. And a lot of, and some of them are dis, uh, dis distinguished fellowships that you just, you know, you hand them out to people with, with this record and some people can't take them. And one of the main reason is family responsibilities. So we came up with a system that said, well, what if if you can't come for during the school year, but what if we give you a three-month fellowship that you can use at times that you have a semester or a winter break or summer break, and then you can break it up. You could still do the research, which would be great for you. You could then learn our collections and shed light on what we have. But it's on your schedule. But it's on your schedule. What difference does it make? Nobody had thought about that, right? It's this way that if we just say like, we're not saying we want more. That's not what equity is. Equity is saying it might look different to you than it does to me because we have different life circumstances. I, I have to I have to laugh that um, I recently saw one of those stories about. I mean, we really don't hate men here. It's going to come out a, a few times that there are little funny stories, though. But there was one of those stories about a guy who had a, two families or maybe three families, uh, one of those horrible stories. And somebody tweeted, and I just loved it, 
couldn't have been a woman. Mothers could never have a secret second family, <laughs> which struck me as being exactly the point. Laurie, what about what about in science, yeah. in space, in your world? I mean, I, ha- I want to just pull on a thread that you started, which is what would it mean for, for women to lead more? I mean, I think what we bring is we bring that a different lens. And that lens is of someone who is working within and succeeding within a system that we did not build, right? Not only was it not built for us, it wasn't built by us, right? And so we automatically come in with that bit of an outsider view, which is a lot of innovation happens with people who are not the insiders, right? And so I see it as a real opportunity if you can find yourself in the right place with the uh, position to bring that outsider view and really drive change that is systemic change, not around the edges, but that we actually step back and look at the systems we operate within and how do we rewire them. That is a great example. When I arrived at JPL, um, which of course is a phenomenal world-class technological organization exploring the frontiers of space and the solar system, understanding the earth and how it's changing with climate. And like, it's just incredible. And you can imagine there's a bunch of really smart people working there and they're fabulous. And we didn't have paid parental leave. Oh, we, right. I mean, I was like, it's California and it's, 2022 it was last year when I got there. I've only been there a year. How do we not have paid parental leave? And, 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 you know, we, we say our values, our inclusion, we have, you know, values and we have big diversity, equity and inclusion and accessibility initiatives, and we don't have paid parental leave. And I said, well, here is a place where our stated values do not match our actions. And that's another good way, I think, to drive change when you come in with that different lens. And so I, we are actually all work for Caltech where JPL is operated by Caltech. And I came to the president of Caltech and said, um, we don't have paid parental leave. And he said, yes, we do. Of course we do. And I said, no, the faculty at Caltech have paid parental leave. Your staff and all of my staff at JPL do not have paid parental leave. Oh my gosh. She said, so we fixed it. And now we have eight weeks of paid parental leave, which is yes. Thank you. Bravo. Um, but you know, you just can't, but somehow it just took coming in with a with a different lens. And it wasn't that women at JPL had not been raising this. They had. But I just so, sort of like the organization wasn't ready to hear it. You really answered um, what was going to be my next question, which is what do little girls and little boys miss by not having women as leaders? And in this case. Right. Because right- this applies to both parents. Right. It, it helps all the families, not not just women. Yeah. And, and if I could pull yeah. on that thread back. You know, when I was at UCSD and I had the pleasure of, of working in uh, the vice chancellor's office for equity, diversity, and inclusion, one of the studies that we saw was that even when there is paid leave, yeah. sometimes women don't hesitate take to take advantage they, of it or yeah. all of it because they don't want to be signaled out. Right. So it's both the structural change and the cultural right. change that needs to happen. That's right. Getting there is not always easy. It's never easy. Aaron, what did it take for you? How did you have to organize your life to make the changes to get where you wanted to be? And and you did a switch in your sport at one point, which made a huge difference. Tell us about that. Yeah, for me, it came down to admitting that I don't know it all and that <laughs> I guess maybe sometimes I don't know a lot. 
and just being able to connect with people who do know more than I do and always being willing to, to learn from those people. And I was really fortunate to have, you know, amazing women as role models coming up, amazing mentors in the sport and outside of the sport. And yeah, just kind were of... These, th- now, were these people you had to seek out or were they, did the Olympic committee find them for you? How did you find uh, mentors who really helped? Right. Yeah. I, they didn't really come from the Olympic committee. They're, you know, people I knew. There was uh, a woman who I grew up skating with and we skated for the same team in a small town in Florida. And yeah, she was just, you know, an amazing, uh, <laughs> an amazing mentor, an amazing uh, example of, of who I wanted to be as an athlete and as a person. And it just so happened that, you know, she went on to uh, switch over to ice skating because back in Florida, you know, there's no ice. So I was a, <laughs> I was a roller skater back then. But yeah, this, this colleague, this friend and teammate, she made the switch over to ice skating and went to the Olympics. And I was like, ooh, maybe someday uh, I could try that as well. And, you know, just kind of followed her out there several years later. And yeah, I mean, maybe it's a story for another time, but I kind of owe my, my Olympic appearance. To a woman who suggested you do that. Now, this seems like a very good time. Uh, have all of you seen an Olympic gold medal ever? I want to point out it's heavy. It's very heavy. Um, But thanks to a woman, right? Right. If she hadn't suggested you switch over. Right. Well, that's what I was saying. Maybe it's a bit too long of a story. But at the Olympic trials, I actually did not make the Olympic team in 2022. I made a mistake in my race and nearly fell. And that kind of cost me my Olympic spot because in a, I do the 500 meter distance and it's the shortest one we have. So, uh, yeah, when you're in a race that short, you just can't afford to make any mistakes. And unfortunately I made a mistake. And this woman who I grew up with and looked up to from a young age, she had won the race that, you know, I was the favorite to win. And she said, you know, Aaron, you've worked really hard. You're at the time I was ranked number one in the world. So I just needed to be number one in the United States to make the Olympic team. She's like, Aaron, you've worked really hard. You've positioned yourself as number one in the world. And this one mistake shouldn't take away from your dreams of, of winning an Olympic gold medal. Like, you are, you are our best shot on Team USA. And what she did is she declined her spot in oh. that race so that I could compete at the Olympics. Wow. <laughs> that would be sisterhood is powerful, I think. Aaron, um, what, I, I was about to say, what did your parents tell you about what you might accomplish? Your mother... Uh, you lost her at an early age, right? Right. Uh, I was a senior in high school. Okay. What about your dad? What did your folks, though, growing up, and what did your dad start telling you about what you could do as a woman, as a black woman? Right. So my parents didn't go to college or anything like that. They didn't have a secondary education, but they always really focused on those things for me. So when I was a kid, you know, they kind of tricked me into thinking that books were cool toys. <laughs> And things like that. I was the kid who carried around a a dictionary because my dad would always say, look it up whenever I had a question. So I was like, well, I have this dictionary so I can look it up. So, yeah, I was a really big nerd as a kid, thanks to my parents who always saw, you know, the value of education. And as long as I focused on school, they were happy to kind of support me in anything else I wanted to do. And for me, that was skating. And, yeah, I mean, they were super supportive in, in anything. And they basically told me that I could be and do anything I wanted to do. And I really appreciate that. You're nodding. Both of you are nodding. I have a follow-up, which is, um, you know, I remember when my son was in about the fourth grade and I would go on uh, field trips with them, that it was around as early as the fourth grade that 
the the teacher or the, the the person leading the tour would ask them a question and the kids even if they didn't know it was the boys that right away you raised their hands and they would they were okay being wrong and they were okay kind of thinking it through and the the girls would make sure they were right and so in my classes even at the university level I'll often say, you know, um, I'll write down the questions or, or talk them and say, you know, talk to your neighbor. And then women always raise their hands and they're, they're very prepared. So what struck me about your story was you said, you know, I made a mistake. And so that that just couldn't happen. And for what you do, you have to be comfortable, one, being on such a big stage and two, making mistakes and coming back, picking yourself up like that is not the way little girls are usually trained to do it. Like, how do you overcome that? That is huge. Right. I think I was just really fortunate to have an amazing coach. So my coach from back in Florida, she's a woman, and she raised three kids in Florida who went on to become Olympic medalists in speed skating on ice. So, I mean, like our little town in Florida has three Olympic medalists which is more than some countries. <laughs> and it all comes down to having this, this amazing coach and she just instilled in us all these amazing values. So my philosophy when it comes to my sport and life in general is that failure is not this big negative thing, right? When I approach a race, I come in calm and confident because I know that if I have prepared the way I should, then if I, if I do well, that's amazing. That's great. Good job well done. And if I don't, then there's always something to learn from it. So I don't see it as like, oh, I've, I don't beat myself off of, up about a big failure. It's more like there's something to be learned from this. I try to think about, oh, like, oh, this I could have done better. This I need to keep the same. I don't know. It's always a learning experience. So I don't see a failure as, as something to run away from. It's what a magnificent outlook on life. That's just spectacular. Um, Lori, Erin um, made the point that her mom stressed the academic part of her of her growing upness. What about you? You had, you had science, you had a, two science parents, basically. Um, my, my come from a family of physicians, my father, grandfather, uncle, all physicians. Um, and you know, like two days before I was going off to Caltech to do my PhD in geology, my dad was still like, MD, PhD, it's not too late. You could still become it. Like, no, no, dad, I'm going to go do space stuff anyway. Um, but he, he likes it now. He's, he's all good now. Um, <laughs> he's very proud actually. Uh, and we'll probably watch this. So hi dad, love you. <laughs> um, my mom was a school teacher, as women often were of her generation. She started as a school teacher in inner city Chicago and uh, stepped back from that when we were born and then and then went back to school and got a master's in counseling and was an academic administrator and a, and a counselor later in her career. Um, but but she was a big time feminist in a, the most fabulous way. Like she just was a, a great woman who really found her voice um, kind of later in her life. When my parents actually got divorced when I was nine, she had three kids under the age of nine and had never balanced a checkbook. And, and well, for you young people, balancing checkbooks is something we used to do. Darn first it. You, I got to change that story. What a check is. I know, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm old. Okay. Um, anyway, she had not been ever lived on her own. She had, I mean, and, and she grew into this absolutely incredible, incredible person. Um, and she always very, both my parents are amazing and they both would, uh, were very focused on education, but also on, um, 
making sure I knew, she always made sure I knew that I could be whatever I wanted to be, which is the line that parents often say. But she used to say it, I think, really from a place of, again, making that, trying to make sure I knew that space was going to be open for me. And, and she really meant it. And, and I knew that always growing up. Uh, so I just, I'm fortunate to have parents who were very supportive. How important is it to each of you um, to have more women in elected political or appointed political positions? How much difference does it make, do you think, when we can look out and see women as political leaders, and, and are there enough of them right now? I'll start. Um, I'll start because I have a specific example in mind. In Los Angeles, we just lost our board of supervisor, uh, Gloria Molina, and I had volunteered on her campaign when I was a high school student. You know, it was really important for me to see a Latina in political office. Um, Why? You know, she was, well, she was... You know, I, and it's still the case now, whether it's a woman or a man, but someone who really represents their community. So somebody who understands the values. So again, it comes back to values. It might be in terms of women, in terms of knowing that they might look at things differently. Um, but it might be somebody who's first gen, LGBTQ, somebody who I know has had a different experience. The um, early 20th century sociologist, black sociologist, W.E.B. Du Bois, he had this concept of double consciousness, this idea that he saw himself through the lens of how the world saw him. So he was always kind of thinking about how he was, but also how the world was perceiving him. And so he needed to be very deliberate in his actions. And while there's not an equivalent of that for women or LGBTQ communities or different people of color, I think we experience a lot of that, right? Like, even as I, I'm, I'm glad you, you know, obviously got the, glad you got the parental leave, but there must have been still something in like coming in. Yeah. This is my first, right, one yeah. of my first issues, right? You kind of know, if I ask for this, what are they going to think? I'm going to push yeah, past that. Sure. But you think those kinds of things. And so Gloria Molina was one of those first, first, first and created equity in all kinds of ways. Um, but one of the pieces that was her obituary that I just thought was so wonderful focused on her female friendships. And you could just imagine, I'm even getting chills as I say it, you could just imagine what it was like for these women fighting for these just causes. And one of the women they interviewed was Antonia Hernandez, who had been the head of MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. She now runs a foundation in California, in Los Angeles. And those two women came onto the political scene in L.A. by fighting for women's reproductive rights. Gloria was running a nonprofit. Antonia was uh, working for Maldef. It was one of her first cases as an attorney. And they took on one of the biggest cases, which was fighting against the forced sterilization of Latinas in L.A. County Hospital. And, you know, this was one that they just and there's this picture of them where there's like there's just no apology. It's their presence. And so those are the kind of things that nobody had fought for these women before. And it took them as 20 something year olds to come together and say this is important. They're being discriminated against in term in every single way. It's unethical. And they were the ones that brought these cases to light. Well, I think I think you really put your you nailed a couple of things there. And I want to just step back a little because you talked about female friendships. And I don't think there has been anything more important in most of our lives than our friendships with other women 
and certainly in your case, Aaron, in terms of your mentors and the people that were that were leading you um, to where you got to. I wonder about within sports, do you feel that women's friendship thing there or is there still so much competition that you can't be really close friends? We are close friends. And I feel like we're going to continue to be more friends than competitors until we're all on the podium, right? Then at that point, we can kind of fight it out. But until then, it's like we're one group fighting against everyone else. And it helps to kind of all be friends and all be working together to try to reach that next level. What about in, in science, um, Lori? Yeah. You're, one is working on a project. You're trying to get somewhere before somebody else. Yeah. Talk to me about that and female friendships and how that works. You know, so much of what we do is team-based. And so for us, diverse teams and how they operate well together is really important. So I think that's definitely something we can talk more about. But it's a really exciting moment literally right now. You know, so I'm the first woman director of JPL. We, As I like to joke, it only took 86 years. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but they also just appointed the first ever woman director of the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, which is the other big NASA science center. So we're the West Coast, they're East Coast. And um, they just appointed a woman as the head of science at NASA headquarters. So she oversees the whole science program and the NASA chief scientist. And those are two different jobs, believe it or not. Don't, don't, you don't even want to see the org chart. But basically the four top science leaders within NASA right now are all women. That has never happened. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. What, what is it going to mean, do you think? It's so fascinating to see already, right? So we are talking more, engaging with each other more than, than I mean, again, I've only been, ba- been back in NASA for a year. I was out for 11 years doing academic stuff, and now I'm back. Um, but the um, the sort of honest vibe for collaboration and it feels less sort of one upy. I mean, you know, again, you can, we have to all see how it goes. A lot of us are new in our roles, but there just seems to be real genuine interest in transparency, working together. Let's be really honest with each other. Let's, because the things we're trying to do are impossible, right? We're trying to go to Mars, grab, bring, bring back these incredible rock samples inside these tubes, launch the first ever rocket from the surface of Mars and bring it all the way back to earth. Um, that's, it's nearly impossible, right? It's, it's really hard. So if you're constantly worrying about, well, what is this person thinking and jockeying for position? It's really hard to do that kind of stuff. And so luckily at a place like JPL, our culture is very open and honest and transparent, sometimes to a fault because people will be like, that's dumb, you know, like, so <laughs> like sometimes they need to work on their delivery a little bit, but between us and other parts of NASA, there have been times when there's stress, there's tension, there's difficulty. Well, should we, should we trust those people with that information? And with these leaders in place, it is just working incredibly well. And I just have to think there is something to that, the, that we are all women. We're all about the same age. We are, you know, we're sort of working together in a wonderful collaboration so far. So I'm excited about that. It is very exciting. Yeah. A, a complete change. I, I should take over the world. Point out, <laughs> I had a tiny little conversation with Lori earlier. Um, she went to Caltech uh, as a, as a graduate student. I did. 
And my question to her was, it was your basic, you know, dumb reporter question. Did you ever think when you were an undergraduate, when you were a graduate student at Caltech, you'd wind up back there as the person running it one day? And the answer was absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it is my dream job. So I feel like the luckiest person in the solar system, probably at least maybe. I don't know about the universe. We we don't know how many (laughs) others are out there. So. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the business. Oh, uh, before we move on to the business world, uh, elections, politics, voting. Yeah. Aaron, is your generation going to vote? Please, More? please vote. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> At least the people I'm around. That's yeah, good news. voting. <laughs> you know that the younger, the y- young people have traditionally, historically, had the lowest voter turnout. The, the, the people that turn out the most are, of course, of course, old people because there's nothing left for us to do but vote. Um, uh, so old people vote. We're wonderful voters. Um, young people have not been great voters. What do you think about your generation? Right. I think I was part of that group that was like, oh, I don't need to vote. I mean, what difference can it make? And everything's fine. Nothing affects me. But then as, as I got older, I don't know, maybe I'm part of the other generation now i'm not sure um maybe it's always the people it happens that way it's interesting (laughs) yeah so i've flipped over to the other side where you know uh, voices do matter and it's important to to get everything out there so yeah maybe i'll have to start talking to my younger my younger friends yeah we both spent a lot of time on college campuses and it is amazing right now I, i always used to say to people if you're feeling despondent about the world come spend a day with me when i was president of this wonderful university, WPI in Worcester, Massachusetts. And we've got a WPI sweatshirt right out here in the audience, I will point out. <laughs> Yay. For, uh, no, Forkham Devils, that's ASU. That's undergrad. Sorry. No, Caltech and WPI Goat Nation. Yes. Go Goat Nation. Um, but I would say come spend a day on the campus because you will leave feeling like, okay, they got it. Like They're like, yeah. no, no, no. You all have messed this up. We are going to fix it. Well, right. this is what we need to happen. It's what we need. It's, it's what we brilliant, need. Com- committed young people to actually yes, change the by world. By all means, let's hear it for the next don't, generation. Don't get over it. Let's keep holding um, on to it. Business world. Uh, what are my numbers here? Eight percent. Women are eight percent of the CEOs of top companies right now. Eight. That's an eight. Um, does it matter? How do we fix it? Anybody care? Well, you deal, Lori, with with businesses all the time, with mm-hmm. space businesses, the yeah. aerospace industry. How They're, many women are running those companies? Well, Gwen Shotwell at SpaceX is doing a pretty good job. Uh, they're launching pretty big rockets these days. So she's, uh, she's amazing. Lockheed Martin has a woman CEO. I mean, there's the, it's, it's more and more, but, but I think still not enough. And, you know, it's, it, it's great to be the first. It's an honor and a privilege, but I, I look forward to the day when it's not as big a thing because there have been many, right? That And there are many options that, you know, I hope that when I step down, which I hope will be never because I'm very happy where I am, but but that there are three or four or five women who are obvious replacement candidates. So, you know, we're not, we're definitely not there yet in the corporate world. And I think the movement to diversify boards of directors is a really important part of that story. Um, diverse boards will um, select more diverse CEOs, and uh, which is you know the most important job of a board is to select a CEO. And and a lot of you know the state of California has I think now legislation is that right is that a law here now that the boards have to have a certain diversity level. It's happening more and more overseas, and I think those things will um, will help us more over time. I don't know if you have a view. I, I'm just so glad to see such a diverse crowd here, um, in, including in terms of age, because. 
you know, the, we're not going to diversify the boards or, and the, the increase the numbers of CEOs by only talking to CEOs and boards. It has to start so much earlier because people start to, um, you know, w- women and girls start to opt out very early on from the kinds of messages that they get. There was just that article in the New York Times about the low number of girls in STEM. And part of it has to do with um, just the power of imagination, not even imagining themselves in certain majors. And so, you know, always getting that message out of you can do this and, you know, not what did you learn, but what question did you ask? What did you push back? Where are you, you know, um, what do you want to do and how do we get there? And making sure that whatever people's dreams are when they're five, six, seven, eight, that they don't stop when they're 12, 13, 14, because all those things lead to having less diversity in those areas. Um, I mean, and it comes even, you know, in the arts and humanities. You know, as I said, I was interim research director at the Huntington Library. But even in terms of our artists and in terms of who gets bought, who gets space. So even if you make it in a certain way, you know, at, as an artist, but who's, you know, getting the bigger commissions, who gets to be shown in museums. And so all those ways that we can help each other out. And that's where that transparency is so important. You know, I see young people in the audience that, you know, they they are, they might be people who are thinking about going to college. And you know what you do. You talk to your friends, your parents, your moms talk to other moms, right? Once you get to college and you're thinking of maybe going on to graduate school, you talk to your friends. It doesn't stop. You know, it doesn't stop no matter what level that you're at. You know, what did you mention that you did now with all these? You talk. How does that work over there? How did, how does, you know, how does your policy work? How much are you getting paid? That's the one thing women talk less about too, right? Yeah. How much are you getting paid? Yeah. Um, you know, what's your compensation package? Like, Knowledge well, is isn't, power. Isn't um, salary one of the great taboos in the world that is being another thing that has gotten broken down over the years? People never talked about how much money they made. Uh, when it turns out, if you do, you can learn a lot of very interesting things, uh, which is how a lot of women learned 30 years, 40 years ago that we were being we were being paid less than men were being paid. Um, Although, can I just say, I love what you said about the... 12, 13, 14-year-old girls, and Sally would have loved it too. That was definitely her focus was middle school girls and and uh, we, where we know that's where so many young women, well, there's a lot of people who lose interest in STEM in middle school, but girls lose uh, interest much more rapidly than boys. And that was a big focus of hers. I spent well, many hours it. talking to middle school girls with Sally, um, trying to keep them excited about STEM. So you would have been very aligned with her there. Uh, middle school was the sweet spot for Sally. It really middle was. Middle school was exactly the age that she that she cared about, partly because she remembered on her own what she went through and how she learned. Um, but that was those. That was the age, and I've seen and, them lined up to get her uh, to get her autograph. But, it was but amazing. The smile she on every Sally's single one of face them. while she was doing that she loved was it. quite extraordinary. Um, that that was a, a huge goal of hers. And uh, yes, you're abs- absolutely right. Um, absolutely right about that. But while we're talking generational, it's very interesting. Um, Natalia, you talked about. Um, looking in the audience, seeing different generations. Uh, Natalia's written an extraordinary book um, about her grandmother um, and and work that she did in L.A. Without going too deeply into that, why is it important? Give us a little a little precy of that. Why is it important that? Um, oh gosh, I'll put it this way: we respect our elders. Hmm. <laughs> sure. 
Uh, I wrote a book called The Place at the Nayarit, How Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. And what it is really trying to show us is this message that we are still feeling, right? I think if you're from a marginalized group, be it women, uh, people of color, LGBTQ community, immigrants, you sometimes feel like you're the only one or when you show up in certain spaces that you kind of stand out. And so my grandmother established a restaurant called the Nayarit on Sunset Boulevard and Echo Park. And it was a place where, you know, this is 1950s, 60s LA. If you think about those redlining maps, that redlining map was still bright in Los Angeles in terms of segregation. Um, this was a time period where, you know, Mexicans uh, weren't allowed in public pools. They were only allowed the day before the pool was drained because they were believe it was believed that they would, you know, dirty the pool. Um, and women, Mexican women, were supposed to be serving their men. And so she kind of inverted all that and said, "I'm going to make a restaurant that's a Mexican restaurant and that doesn't cater to." kind of a whitewashed idea of what being Latino means, you know, with Spanish rice, you know, she could put her traditional dishes from Mexico. And it became a place where people could, you know, really claim space, use their voice and belong. And I think that message of being seen and having voice and having and exerting our voice is something that we can all learn from. And so um, I'm honored. It was recently you know, nominated. It's a, a finalist for the James Beard Award. And I think here was a woman who thought Latinos weren't getting their due. Women aren't getting their due. And so she was representing that through food. And I think in many ways, that argument can still be being made. I mean, we talked about you know pay right now. I think we just had uh, Pay Equity Day March 14th. It took that long to catch up with men's wages from last year. And that's just for white women. It looks different when you look at women of color. And so to think like, here's this woman whose story's getting her due, like 73 years later, you know, yeah. It's a, it's a great story. And we hope you win the award. We will oh, thank be, you. <laughs> if we could vote, we would, we would all vote. Unfortunately, I'm not a judge in the James Beard competition, but um, good for you. Uh, how about you, um, uh, Aaron? Did you have a grandmother, any grandparents in the picture? Were they able to be mentors to you at all? Not as much. My parents were a bit older when they had me. So yeah, I didn't have as much interaction with, with my grandparents. But I've heard stories about my grandfather on my mom's side, and maybe that's where I got kind of my, my STEM interest, because I think he worked in math and science and, and things like that, aeronautics. Yeah. Well, that brings up um, a, another very important point we should talk about, which is in terms of um, raising the next generations of, of women, what's the role of men? What's the role of fathers and brothers and grandfathers, um, uncles? Um, any, Laura, you got some thoughts on yeah, that? Essential. It's absolutely essential. I mean, again, in all, uh, issues around, uh, underrepresented folks having, um, the more again, that we collaborate across any kind of difference, I think is, is critical. Now I am the stepmom of two boys, so I don't necessarily have a lot of personal experience in, uh, in raising a daughter. So I, I, I don't know if others, if you have what. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, like you said, uh, you know, women are what you said, 8% CEOs. So we need men to be partners. We need them to embrace those same values that you've been talking about in terms of, you know, transparency and equity and dialogue. 
that is something that can't only be done by 50% of the population, especially when they're not making up 50% of CEO positions and board positions. Um, you know, in, in terms of um, how we get those values and also making sure women have time to do those things by by redistributing work and life balance at home as well. Um, when I was and raising- Reading the school calendar ahead of time. Reading the, well, and I'll, <laughs> I'll give you another example. When my son was young, um, you know, people, parents often give their kids a chore, a list of chores so that they, you know, can earn some money. And I never gave them a list. I was like, your job is to come in the room and look, look around what needs to be done. No one needs to tell you to take <laughs> out the trash if the trash <laughs> is full. No one needs to tell you to wash the dishes if there's dishes in the sink. Your job is to look and own the problem because so much of the labor is just thinking of the problem and asking people for help. It's a, you're giving new definition to the phrase "read the room." Read the room. <laughs> the gendered read the gendering of read the room. Yes, all ultra. I I actually have a a very grown uh, stepson who actually likes a chore list. So by the way. Um, I like being able to be the one that determines what the chores are, but I like your approach also. Um, I think that's a great approach. Yeah. So we've all we've all done our thing in some ways and um, had an effect on on other women and younger women. What have we done wrong? What are some of the mistakes you think that women have done in terms of promoting equality and women's rights? Can you think of anything? Surely we've done something wrong. I, I don't want to say wrong. I think it's, um, we talked about this a little bit in the room, and I might get a little emotional because um, my cousin, I love one, you recently had surgery um, around a woman's health issue. And it was just a stark reminder of how much we still need. There's the structural part, right? Like for women's health, much of that... Um, was something that they've been disempowered from, right? We aren't taught to ask. We that kind of knowledge, you know, uh, OBGYN knowledge was, you know, traditionally. I'm a historian, so I don't want to get get too, you know, a historian on you. But you know, this was something that was often a domain of of um, male doctors, and there's a way in which that has also seeped into the culture. And so we still don't ask, and doctors aren't often trained in these issues. You know, we talk about women being 50, 51 percent of the population. But if you're talking about women's health, you have to go to a specialist. And so it was just one of those things where with the surgery, you know, here my loved one is asking me for, uh, for information. And it's like we need to share knowledge and we need to destigmatize it. And I also think about it for the very young generation, again, that, that middle school population that, uh, uh, you know, the Judy Bloom is in the news a lot, both because her her book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which is in part based on getting, you know, her period or not getting her period. Um, and in part because that book is being banned. Um, so, you know, what are the books being banned? The books being banned are are ones that share knowledge from women for, for LGBTQ communities. These are the books that are being banned. And so part of it is like really pushing back on Informa knowledge is power. Sharing information is important. And women have always shared it. But there are times where we feel like we have to share it quietly. We don't want to make people well, uncomfortable. I, I have to interrupt because I, I find it so stunning 
we started out this by saying, didn't we do that already? And, and are we done yet? And the answer, of course, is no. In the 70s, in the late 60s, there was an extraordinary publication out of Boston called Our Bodies Ourselves, in which a group of women, some of you may remember that amazing publication, got together and for the first time went leapfrogged over the, the gynecologists who were all male in those days, essentially, and talked about things about women's bodies. And 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 it's like all that wonderful knowledge, I don't mean just what was between those pages, but the idea of sharing, the idea of 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 um passing it down woman to woman kind of thing seems to have been forgotten. We there are probably lots of things from the past the past thirty, forty, fifty years that we, we need to revive a little bit Absolutely. that would be helpful. Well and as we it feels a lot of times and this feels to me a bit like this right now, this two steps forward, two or three steps back, right? As we as we progress the the response is getting fiercer. And and so I think Again, uh, all we can do is stand strong in those uh, and and keep pushing forward, keep pushing. knowing that right is right. And, and, and I think um, it's also we think history is linear. Right. We think history is progressive. We think if we're here, we're going to keep progressive. No. Progressing, it's like, no, we're always kind of, you know, in this circle. And so unless you keep pushing, you have to keep- and, it, and it might be through politics. But it might be through those conversations with women. It might be through grassroots movements. It might be through college campuses. You need all these places. It's not just in one place because knowledge and power resides in our systems. It resides in our culture. And so we have to push in all those areas. When um, uh, I interviewed Sally right before she flew in 1983, and I said to her, um, are you afraid? Are you, are you afraid of not succeeding? And she said, yeah, I am concerned. She said, um, I don't want to mess up. And that, and Sally being Sally, that was all she said. I knew exactly what she meant. She didn't want to mess up for NASA because she cared about NASA. She didn't want to mess up for the mission. She really cared about teamwork. She didn't want to mess up for other women because she knew, she understood that if she did a bad job, that Everybody would say, you see, you cannot hire women as astronauts. It just won't work. So I'm wondering, to what extent does each of you feel if you mess up, it'll be bad for other women? Or do you think we're beyond that? And Erin, I want to start with you. Right. So, uh, yeah, one thing you mentioned about, you know, kind of keeping things going, I think, like, especially for my generation, where we saw women doing amazing things, and we were able to see those examples like maybe we get a little bit complacent like oh there's not much more that needs to be done we're already on the right path but yeah that's what you that's when you really have to keep pushing for it because if you kind of fall asleep on on the progress then that's kind of when when the steps back happen so yeah just one thing I wanted to touch on is kind of keeping the the foot on the on the pedal when it comes to making strides and making improvements you you're now stepping out on the ice do you have a concern that if you don't win or if you don't do well, you're messing it up for other women? I don't, actually. I've had similar questions about, you know, pressure and expectations and things like that. But for me, it's that I feel that I want to be a good example for any group that I may represent at all times. It's that I, I always just kind of want to do something that reflects well on on who I am and how I was raised and things like that. So I don't have any, I don't, I don't think I have any added pressure 
uh, when it comes to specific things, but just always trying to to be a good example and to keep things moving forward. Lori, you're the first female president of JPL. If you mess up, does it make it terrible for another woman? 100%. I 100% feel that pressure. Um, you know, on the, the day my appointment was announced, which was a year ago, January, and I needed to see the academic year through at WPI, so I didn't come until May. But on the day it was announced, um, I know lots of people at JPL already because I've been working with them, although I've never worked there. I've been working with them for years. And and uh, some of them started emailing me or direct messaging me on Twitter, basically, and um, at Lori of Mars, by the way, if anybody wants to follow on Twitter. Um, <laughs> But wait till we get off the stage. This one was, uh, she was she was DMing me on Twitter like, oh my gosh, everybody's so excited. And they were still sort of mostly remote with COVID and everything. And then and then she's like, okay, so we're all, we're all you know, on Slack celebrating. And now we launched a Zoom uh, so that we can all celebrate together. And oh my gosh, there's women crying on the Zoom. Like, because they're so, they can't believe it. They're so, now we're having an impromptu dance party on the Zoom. <laughs> and, and now we've made you a Spotify playlist with a hundred songs about women <laughs> on the Zoom, right? So like, it's amazing. It's incredible. Like the support has been and the welcome, not just from women, but actually from everybody's been incredible. But I, it's very visible and you definitely feel it. And so, you, you know, I, I don't let it ch change what I do, but I, but I do feel it. I definitely, uh, as the first, and I felt the same in my, in my last job as a college president, although there have been a lot of college presidents that have been women. JPL is a bit of a more unique kind of institution. Well, so. it's there. Uh, Natalia, uh, I bet your grandma didn't worry about being a female. I, I I suspect you're right. You know, it's, I don't feel that way. And I'm trying and I'm, I, I hadn't even thought about it. So I'm trying to understand why. And I think one thing is the diversity of my field being in arts and humanities, that there are more of us. Right. Um, but I actually kind of have the opposite issue, which is probably because I feel like I stand on my grandmother's shoulders, all the women that came before us. Um, you know, I come from an immigrant family. And the message we got was to go to school and do what we could to use our voice. They didn't even teach us to cook. Yeah, they're like, you can you can buy a cookbook, cookbook later. I mean, my grandmother started a restaurant <laughs> and they wouldn't even teach us to cook. They're like, no, you need to be reading books. And later on, you can buy a cookbook, but not now. And so if anything, <laughs> I have the opposite issue sometimes that I feel my purpose, my role is to, you know, to talk about uh, gender and, and race in terms of the structures that we've built around it and the narratives that justify those in order that we could change them. So sometimes when it's a very nice event, in this, in this case, it was women in leadership. I'm like, oh, they want us to talk about these things. But I gave a commencement speak, speech, I think last week. And when they invited me, I'm like, you do know what I do, right? Like, <laughs> I can't give a generic you know, commencement speech like, please go forth take risks. Um, and I said, no, we know what you do. That's why we're inviting you. I said, okay, then that's fine. So it's almost like once you have that story to tell, you must tell it. Um, let me switch gears just a little bit. Um, I know for a fact, um, uh, Sally Ride was hired at NASA as one of the first six women American astronauts, uh, partly because of her background as a tennis player. They love the fact she knew how to do teamwork. 
Uh, her hand-eye coordination was incredible, which you need for operating the robotic arm and various other things on the shuttle. Um, so her athletic side, her her um, her sport, really helped her to get into what became her profession. What about you? What thing not that you do helps you in what you do? Aaron, you got something? Well, I think my the two sides of me kind of go hand in hand because I actually think I'm more of uh, a nerd, I guess, than an athlete. And that's something that my teammates will definitely tell you. I'm probably the, the least athletic person uh, on the team. So I rely more on my, my analytical mindset, I guess, to kind of get that, that edge in my sport. So yeah, I think I just How have... How does it give you an edge when you're speed skating? It's a very, very technical sport. So, I mean, it's like part mental, part physical, and just mainly uh, technical. So, yeah, just being able to analyze techniques and positions and things like that and just trying to visualize, you know, what am I doing on the ice? What are these movements? What's my body position like? And just kind of making it all muscle memory and getting a bit robotic with it, I guess. When you're on the ice, when you're in the middle of a, of a, of a race, are you really th- are you thinking about that? No, that's the whole point is to not think about it when you're in the race. You do it over and over again in training so that it becomes kind of second nature. So training is when I'm using my analytical mindset. And then when I'm racing, everything just goes blank and I rely on all my training. So your mind is blank at that point. I can't believe your mind is ever blank, but you're telling me your mind is blank. Uh, it seems blank. You get maybe a sort of amnesia when you're okay. <laughs> when you're in the moment. A sort of a Zen state or, or Right. So I mean a lot of people ask me, like, how did you feel, you know, going to the line at the Olympics? Like it had to be a super nerve wracking moment, especially coming off of my big mistake at Olympic trials. You know, my my next race was at the Olympics. So, you know, that kind of people were asking me, like, oh, did that make it even harder? But no, I mean like I said kind of before, I as long as I put in the training and at that point I knew that I had done everything I needed to do to get myself to this moment. So I just went to the line feeling confident, like I've done what I needed to do. I've listened to my coach. He has the hard job. All I have to do is listen to him. So I just went to the line feeling ready to go. Yeah. See, I, I bet I think that astronauts would say the same thing. This is why the astronauts train the way they do, so right. that in the moment they don't it's have just to. Automatic. They they know what to do, right? All right. Because what about have, you? You're a successful scientist, yeah. now academic. What's your what's your secret um, superpower? So, <laughs> I you know what I I don't actually know, but but I was sitting here thinking about it when I when I when you asked the question, and you know I think in part so I'm the oldest, um, which I joke is like a surprise to no one once they kind of get to know me. But um, and and again, my my parents split up when I was small. My mom like was working and going back to school, and so. I sort of raised my brothers and ran the house like from a really young age. And so I've been sort of in charge of things Type a is for like 50 years. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I, I think this idea of sort of naturally kind of figuring out how, how to get stuff done is it, it, sort of something that I've been doing since I was a kid. So that's not a, a hobby, but it's more about something in my background and upbringing that I think actually did contribute to me. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, that's, it's your superpower. It, it, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> now, Natalia, you have one? Yeah. You know, when you get a PhD, the program is broken up into two parts. The first part is learning everything that's been written in the field about what you're studying. You know, you're learning the literature, mastering the literature. And then you go to write your dissertation 
and it's the complete opposite. Now you have to find the one thing someone hasn't written about and develop a book on it basically. And you're like, uh, and so I took a, a workshop and it was a writing workshop on how to write a dissertation. And one of the things they said was just start something new because it's always hard when you start something new. And if you do that, then you won't beat yourself up about failing or not doing well with the dissertation and think that it and internalize it and personalize it. You'll just realize it's all about a learning curve. So I'd always wanted to run a marathon, even though I didn't really run. Um, but I joined a training program and I connected with this great group of women and they start you off like in tiny steps. And then you do a long run on Saturdays and then we'd go get bagels and we'd talk the whole time. And it just one foot, literally one foot in front of the other. And I ran my first marathon and that was something that I kept up for a while. And it ended up helping my writing in other ways, including, um, my second book. And I ran here in San Diego, uh, with, uh, San Diego fit. They were the, the best in motion fit. They were the best running group. Um, and, because people would say, what do you do? And so you have to tell people what you do, what you're writing about in a way that's not for specialists. So it ended up helping my writing in very direct ways besides just kind of getting me comfortable with the unknown. That's great. Another another example of an athletics helping. And in your case, it was just family. It's just the way it went. Um, we've had a number of questions from the audience that we got earlier. I think we've answered most of them, but there are one or two I just want to go to right now. Uh, someone has written, often when I'm in a leadership role, I feel I get disrespected or treated differently from men in my position. How do you usually handle yourself in that situation? Do you fight back, talk back, just discuss privately, or do you just take it in and try to work through your own feelings? It's a tough question. It is. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, pretty fortunate now to be at a level where that doesn't happen as often as I would say it probably did as I was on my way to this place. But, um, but it's, I find humor often works in those situations. And, um, and, you know, to me, it's more often these days that I will see it happening to another woman in a meeting that I'm with and trying again, this is a, a I was going to call it a trick, but that's a, that's a sad thing to call it. But it's an approach that I think a lot of us use, which is to amplify the voices of other underrepresented people in um, group conversations, because it's very easy for those voices to be sort of overwritten or overrun. And, um, and we're like, wait a minute, she said that five minutes ago, or, or just to amplify, wow, I think that's a really good point. Or, um, and, and so again, just trying to, just pause in the moment. And then if someone's really acted inappropriately is don't deal with it in the room in front of lots of other people, but deal with it soon and separately. I don't think it's a terrible idea to have some things prepared. Um, when you say answer with humor, you can't always, you know, you know, the phrase l'esprit de l'escalier, um, the spirit of the staircase. It means you think of the exact thing you should have said as you're leaving always, the party. Yeah, always. And, <laughs> and, I think I'm amazed sometimes at how quick some people are at, at getting back at tense moments. And I've learned that a lot of them have stuff prepared and they're just waiting for that moment. And I, yeah. I think it's not a terrible idea to anticipate 
And with luck, you'll never have to use it. But if you have some things ready, as you say, deal with it with humor. And you don't always feel very humorous when someone says something terrible to you or embarrassing. Right. right. But if you have a few things prepared, um, it might be worth taking the time. How about uh, either one of you have any thoughts on this one, Natalia? I definitely wouldn't keep it inside because, you know, you end up hating your job. And it's it's not a you problem. It's a workplace culture problem. Because if somebody's exerting their power that way to you, they're exerting that power to other people. And it's letting other giving other people the message that it's okay to do that. And so, you know, either preparing things or, you know, dealing with it after or dealing it with, with it before by having a meeting for all of the, the, the workplace saying, Hey, these are some ground rules about when we meet, um, you know, sometimes dealing with it after, but also dealing with it by, by being a bystander for that person. My husband's a very good person and he listens to me and he tries, and he, he was telling me the other day, this thing happened and, you know, to this woman at work and I wanted to say something, but I realized I do not need to rescue her. And I said, yes, but it's still good to be a bystander and say something. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> right? So, like, we can all say something at times. And I do love the humor line. And the line that I always had was, you know, when I was a professor and I would get, you know, uh, when I first started out as a professor and, you know, sometimes I'd even get confused. Um, people would think I was a student and I would speak up in meetings and somebody would say, well, Natalia, you know, I've only been doing this since I got my PhD in 1970. And I would just embrace it and say, really, I wasn't even born then. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> right. Got it. Okay, everybody, speculate as wild a fantasy as you like. What if women ran the world? <laughs> what would be different? You could make it a big smile on Aaron's face, uh, whether it's your little world, your big world, or the world in general. Aaron, you got some thoughts? Well, yeah, I just think things would be different, you know, and different is almost always good, right? There's always, <laughs> <laughs> always room for change because, you know, it's hard for people to kind of imagine what another person might need if that person doesn't say it. And when you have the women and leadership and running the world, then it just makes it a, a better place for, you know, like you said, they, we represent like half the world. So it's important to have, you know, those voices represented because, you know, it helps to see people like you doing things. And if a young woman or a young girl sees another woman in leadership, then it inspires them to maybe want to do that. Like, oh, I see someone like me, like I can aspire to those things as well. And yeah, I brought up Sally Ride as someone when people would ask me like, oh, why does it matter if you're, you know, the first black person to, to do something like this? And I think it matters because then, you know, maybe someone else will see it and, and be inspired to like try these new sports, try these new things, just as young girls and young women were inspired by Sally Ride when she when she went into space. So I think it definitely does matter. And with, with women running the world, you know, the, the sky's the limit. Like, who knows what what we would see and, and what the world would be capable of. And in fairness, you were talking uh, before we came here, uh, before we came on the stage, that Mae Jemison, uh, our first American black female astronaut, was a role model of yours growing up. She was a really big role model for me. I looked up to Dr. Jemison, Dr. Jemison ever since I was a, ch a child. I remember taking trips down to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida with my mom to, you know, pick up costumes and flashcards and books and things like that and and I dressed up as Dr. Jemison for some school projects and yeah I was a, a really big fan and looking forward to hopefully someday catching up with her and <laughs> and you will and you will okay women running the world 
When you said that, I was looking at the audience and I didn't see like this spark of joy. What I saw was like women's shoulders go down and kind of a sense of relief. <laughs> and that lets me know that just saying that there's stress, right? And that that person who asked that question isn't the only one that has had that happen. And so, again, this isn't about women per se. It's about a workplace culture where people feel inspired where people feel they can collaborate, where people feel they can be their best selves. And all those things are, are, all those things are happen because you take into, into account people's differences. And you, you know, you have a workplace culture that believes in equity and transparency. Who doesn't want that? So I don't, I, I think it's like if women, if we have those values, if with women running the world, that is something that would make everybody's shoulders go down and get that smile on their face that I'm seeing right now. It's a wonderful image a of, a, of a, a great relief coming to an entire, an entire population in the world. Well, Lori, I can tell you, we wouldn't be having the debt ceiling debate that we're having right now. <laughs> I mean, really? Like, how about we, we uh, get past the, petty political and get to actually solving really intractable problems. And I just, I don't know, in my dreams, uh, and I just spent, you know, three days on the Hill, uh, on Capitol Hill, about three or four weeks ago, meeting with a bunch of committee chairs, talking about space and, you know, national posture and competition in space and all men that I met with every single one of them. And most of their staff were men. And so, you know, women are not running the world yet. And so we've, we've definitely got, got more work to do there. Uh, we started out by talking about the fact that we're not there yet. Uh, we've been around a bunch of places. How many generations do we have to wait until things change, do you think? That's a good question. I don't know. I really am feeling the vibe of this, this generation who's in college now. I happen. sure feel it with my grandkids. I mean, I really have a sense that they're not going to tolerate a lot of what's been tolerated. But both well, both underrepresented um, people, women, um, communities of color, but but the young majority men, many of them as well, are just absolutely. like this is BS. Excuse me. And it's Excuse time for, you. it's time for, Unfortunately, it's time for real change. It's, and, it's one of those words that's now part of the vocabulary, given right. where the political yeah. situation. And, and so I'm, I'm really hopeful. We'll get there some other time. Um, I'm really hopeful. We could talk for another three days and um, probably make a difference, but I'm going to have to uh, draw an end to this right now. Uh, I told you this was the perfect panel for this. Um, and they are examples of the fact that we are indeed getting to be everywhere. We are in science. We are in space. We are in sports. We are in academia. We are in journalism. We are in history. Uh, and we're not going anywhere. Sally used to say, reach for the stars. I say, let's make the world a better place, which women are going to do and have been doing. And I would, I would like to thank the audience for being so wonderful I and for caring. I would also like everybody to think about the fact when you wake up tomorrow, it will be Sally Ride's 72nd birthday. So happy birthday, Sally. Thank you to all of you. Thank you to my wonderful panel. And let's all watch Aaron in um, Milan in 2026. <laughs>